I'm Mushtaq Khan, and welcome to this um, seminar. It's more of a kind of informal discussion seminar. Lindsay probably doesn't need introduction to most of you. She's someone who's written quite a lot on Africa and different countries within Africa, and is currently based in, in Denmark, but at the moment is in the University of Oxford, where she's writing up a book on Ghana um, in the next couple of months. So I'll, I'll let Lindsay start off, and we hope to have some time at the end for discussions as well. Yes, so I'll try not to speak for too long, but it's a rather complex argument, and as it is, I will summarize it. But I want to leave plenty of time for um, questions and discussion in the end. So it is a, a book launch, and Casper, who's not actually here, asked me to come and speak to the uh, group on working and studying economic transformation in Africa. So if any of you here are from that, I didn't even know that it existed, but it's great, but it does. So I am going to basically be talking about um, the argument in the book. It's a very big book, so obviously I'm not going to give you the whole argument. Um, but I'll try to at least give you an overview and hopefully um, get you excited um, agreeing, not agreeing, discussion, uh, it would be exciting. So it is a work, um, a collaborative work uh, with my colleagues, uh, Ole Terkelsen, Lars Bohr, and Anna Medicare. We were on a research project together funded by Danita, which began in 2008, um, ended around 2012, and then it took us a couple of years to, to write the book. It's now rather commonplace to assert that the recent growth spurt in most African countries since the mid-1990s has not led to significant structural changes of their economies, at least not by 2010 when we were writing. Um, but it's important to say when we started this work, um, this was not such a commonplace argument. I mean, in 2008, I can remember writing the first concept paper on economic transformation, and you were just hearing this word come out and be in, in the titles of... of, of working papers in grey literature. Now it's quite a common topic to talk about, as is industrial policy, as we'll see. Um, but I say this because it's sort of the framing puzzle of the book. So we wanted to say that, um, yes, many African countries have experienced significant growth over a long period of time, some of the longest in a while. Stephen Radley had his famous book, um, There Was All the Africa Rising Narrative, but we wanted to say that growth, per se, was not important. What was important was economic transformation. Um, and to look at African countries and show that the growth had, had led to limited changes in productive se sectors, and thus limited job creation, limited rise, uh, raises in the standard of living. Um, and also because you had low productivity in most economic sectors, um, you were not seeing widespread poverty reduction, and even in countries where they said there was, like Ghana, we're talking about poverty reduction just over the threshold line and a very vulnerable poverty reduction. So the framing of the book is really to look at what we call the puzzle of economic transformation in Africa. Um, and this is a comparative book, it's why it's called Comparative Perspective. We were not writing to an African studies audience. We wanted to reach both an African studies audience, but also a comparative politics, a comparative political economy audience and to talk about why have African countries struggled with economic transformation relative to other parts of the developing world, both since independence and today in the latest growth spurt since structural adjustment. 
Um, so there is this longer durée argument, and it's why when we come to the findings in the African countries, I'm going to make a few comments about that. Um, and so what we, in this context of the puzzle of economic transformation in African countries from independence today, we were trying to, we wanted um, to make three contributions to this debate, and we hoped in a way that would radically change it. Again, we started this in 2008. Some things we don't need to radically change because they've already changed on themselves. <laughs> and that's the first one, which was about conceptualizing economic transformation and the role of industrial policy and catalyzing it. Um, I'm not going to say much about that part, uh, which is covered in one chapter of the book, um, partly because I knew I was talking to the economic transformation group. Um, so I'm going to skip over parts of that. But I think the, Im the important thing is to say that industrial policy has very much is back on the agenda increasingly so, even in a way when we finished the book manuscript, it wasn't. So much so that we're having industrial policy on Africa seminars left, left and right. Um, what I'm going to talk more about is the politics of African industrial policy. But if you want to go back in discussion um, time about how do we conceptualize economic transformation, I'm, I'm glad to talk about that. I will say a few things about how do we understand industrial policy, because it's important to set up the politics. But really, we want to focus on um, if lots of economists talking about industrial policy, what needs to be done on the economic side. Um, but the part that's getting less traction, also because it's not the terrain of economists, is what kind of government do you need to in implement industrial policy? What kind of state? What kind of politics? Kind of governance? Um, and not surprisingly, the return of industrial policy to mainstream economics has also been followed by the return of the discourse of the developmental state. Um, and particularly, how can Africa, African countries, get a developmental state? This is a lot of the common discourse. So I'm going to hopefully attack that kind of discourse by showing the way that we are approaching um, this idea. And that really brings us to the second contribution of the book, which is to present a new theoretical approach to understanding why governments both pursue industrial policy and how do they implement it successfully. And when we talk about success of industrial policy, in one level, on one hand, we're talking about success in terms of what the government actually set out to achieve in its own documents and initiatives. And then we can look at a larger sense of what were the productivity constraints in a particular productive sector and has this industrial policy um, solved those constraints. But in the book, we, we were very much looking at the success of government initiatives in achieving their own goals. And in creating this theoretical approach, um, we are very much building on snippets and piecemeal arguments within the comparative political economy literature. Um, so what I don't claim to be presenting something that's fundamentally new, but rather putting it together in a, in a, new, in a systematic way, and th that aspect of it is new. <laughs> what we also wanted to do is to, is to adapt that comparative political economy literature to African experiences. Most of it doesn't talk about African countries. It's largely about Asian countries, Latin American countries. Um, and what we did do is we developed the theory over the four years of fieldwork. And so we were, it was very much an iterative process where we drew on the experiences in the four African countries that we were looking at in developing the theory. So there is very much a build in there. And then the third contribution we wanted to make was 
just to produce empirical studies on the politics of industrial policy in Africa. Um, we did it in four African countries, Ghana, Mozambique, Tanzania, and Uganda, because those are the countries in which our team um, are, had been working in for, for me a decade, for my colleagues who are much older than I am for several decades. Um, and it's very important to say that when we started this, there was very little political economy work on productive sectors in African countries. I think the research agenda had shifted over to democracy, democratization. Um, so there is li very little done around industrial policies, around why certain policies were selected, certain sectors, how they were implemented and why. So what we did is we chose two productive sectors in each of our countries, and that choice was based that there had to be a government sector, a government initiative targeting that sector. Um, and through these two cases in each country, we developed a story both about the economic challenges of production in that sector, as well as the politics around um, the formulation of of government initiatives and their implementation. And this is important because in many, many countries, there were stories which no one had written. My colleague Lars Bohr wrote the story of sugar in Mozambique. Before that, I don't think many people knew that Mozambique had rehabilitated its sugar sector um, to, the, to the level that it had through state-driven initiatives. Likewise, um, I wrote some of the only work that there is on palm oil in Ghana, bringing it to the contemporary period. And also on horticulture, which didn't make it in the book, because in the end, there was really no industrial policy there. But the point was that we need more research on productive sectors, uh, this kind of research on productive sectors um, in African countries. And the last point is to say is our research really fo um, follows the, the early 1990s till about 2010, partly because we needed to research something that had already been implemented. Um, and that was the period that we were looking at. There were not that many industrial policies to even choose from. And m almost all of them are in agriculture or agro-processing. I think that situation is changing now. And so what we also are trying to do is set a research agenda for the next African political economist. This is the kind of work that we would promote and that we hope people are doing. And I think as we see more African governments attempt industrial policy, there will be more to study. Um, so I'm going to focus on contributions two and three. I'm going to lay out the theoretical approach, which is in two steps. Um, and then the last part of the presentation, what I'm going to do is present some of the summary findings from the industrial policy case studies in each of the countries. So we have four countries, so we have eight industrial policy cases. And instead of presenting a complete case to you, because some of you may or not be interested in sugar or dairy, or palm oil. I'm going to give you some of the, the finding, the, the, particularly relating to the theoretical framework, the findings that we have um, on industrial policy. I will have, again, we cannot talk about in Africa. Africa is extremely diverse, and I think countries and their economies and their politics are diverging even more. So I will preface or make caveats most African countries, or sometimes I'll say in our four African countries. So we do have, I do have to say a little bit about what is industrial policy, just so we're all on the same page. It has become an increasingly commonly used word, but people think different things about it. And in a lot of people, when you say industrial policy, they think of a government document that the government just created that says the industrial policy of Ghana. That is not what we're talking about. Um, we very much developing, 
the way that it began to be used by Danny Roderick, is government's initiatives, government support targeted to specific productive sectors. We're very much interested in specific government initiatives. And sometimes these don't even have a policy document or a paper trail, not even at the beginning. And I think this is important because a lot of attention has been on Ethiopia's industrial policy, for example. Um, but I think it's important to go down and look at what governments are actually implementing on the ground, which may not have a big policy document that you can see. The other that is that clearly we're fo following in Cheng that this has to be targeted. Um, and it has to be targeted because industries face different institutional challenges and have specific needs related to the type of production and export markets. So you need industry-specific infrastructure, financing, skills training, research and development, and even around maybe changing the ways you acquire and use land in a particular just for a particular productive sector. Industrial policy can do many things, but I think the key thing, the, the key points about what it's supposed to do, I've summarized up here, is address the constraints on productivity that are costly for individual firms to do on their, on their own. A lot of the things I just mentioned, infrastructure, financing, skills training, these can't be provided by an individual firm. The costs are too high. So some of it is about public provision, public subsidization, subsidizing of these kind of industry-specific goods, but it could also just be the state helping firms to come together collectively and provide them collectively. I think these, this part of industrial policy is very well known, and, and, and Danny Roderick has talked about it a lot. I think the other side of industrial policy that gets less discussion, <coughs> except in the work of Mushtaq Khan and others, um, is that it's also important to underwrite risk and finances, finance losses incurred while firms are learning to be profitable and competitive in new activities. Firms don't initially undertake new economic activities because the costs are too high, but also because the risks of becoming profitable can be quite high. And as Mushtaq has shown as in, in, argued in his own work, um, while firms are learning, they're incurring loss. And how long this period of loss will be, you don't know, because you don't know how long it will take to be profitable. And this is a main reason why firms don't go into new economic activities in African countries. Yes, on the cost of production side, infrastructure, land, etc., but equally important on who will finance this period of loss. And so industrial policy is really sort of a catch, is a concept for me, not a thing. It means targeted in government initiatives to address the productivity constraints in a particular productive sector and underwriting risk and, and different ways of financing losses, which means there's not one way to do this. These are just the kinds of things that need to be addressed. That's what we refer to industrial policy. Many different solutions, specific design of initiatives can help to do these things. The second part to say is that industrial policy is inherently political. It's not a technical thing. It's inherently political because it involves the allocation of resources in a context of scarcity, scarce state resources. It involves institutional changes that affect the distribution of economic benefits. And we sometimes downplay this, but every initiative, even the smallest one, will have short-term winners and losers. It will affect the distribution of benefits for someone. And therefore, these new institutions have to be enforced. All of these processes are contested. 
I would say always, by some group in society or even and or within the political elite. So in this way, industrial policies can, can never be, I think, seen as technical. The politics side has always got to be there. And the politics can also explain why different countries, which have the same um, constraint on productivity in a given sector, will choose to tackle it with a different design because it has to fit the politics. But in African countries, we have another set of issues which I like to highlight. Most, and here's my caveat, most African countries are still in the early stages of capitalist transformation. And one of the things that we try to do in this book is put the C word back on the table. So when we talk about economic transformation, we're talking about capitalist economic transformation. And we argue that black African capitalist classes are still emerging through processes of primitive accumulation, um, through which we're also drawing on Mushtaq's work where this is not the original concept used by Marx but any politically driven accumulation and also land because so much of this is so much of industrial policy is linked to agriculture agro-processing and it's about land and we see that land is governed by hybrid institutions of capitalist and non-capitalist property rights and multiple conflicting rights coexist in are contested. So issues about land rights, who has land rights, the conflicting land rights, they come up in almost any case. Therefore, industrial policy is not simply a policy, but about changing property rights and the distribution of economic resources in the context of capitalist development. When you see it like this, it's not so, it's not a mystery anymore that implementing industrial policy is difficult because it's not a technical policy. And if you think about economic transformation as capitalist economic transformation, then you realize why it's so hard to achieve. So now, if this is what we mean by industrial policy, and if this is how we think about it in African countries that are still in the early processes of capitalist um, development, how should we understand the politics? And in this chart, I try to um, just summarize some key points, which I think some key points about the dominant approaches to thinking about the politics of industrial policy, both in the comparative politics literature and in the African studies literature. And the two dominant approaches are the developmental state and the neo-patrimonial state. On the one hand, um, we need a developmental state. This is how you imp implement industrial policy. And on the other hand, it's the neo-patrimonial state that keeps African countries from implementing industrial policy. Um, and I want to make two points here. One, theoretical, is that the, this conception of the developmental state and of the neo-patrimonial state are two sides of the same theoretical approach, which we would call a neo-Weberian approach. They both stem from ideas of um, ideal types of political authority or states drawn from Weber, which I've summarized in the top. So we hear, there you can see the definition for the Weberian ideal type, and then I've tried to summarize a sort of neo-Weberian argument in the literature and how they link it to um, economic development. The other point to make here is that this theoretical conception of what is required to implement industrial policy is just empirically wrong. In the book, we go at great lengths to show this. Here, I can only summarize some key points. 
but which is that South Korea and Taiwan did not implement grand industrial policies, the ones that were on paper, but rather policy making and implementation was dominated by improvised decisions and ad hoc policy changes. Their incremental trial and error strategies emerged by default. And I think the most controversial one, but the one that David Kang makes convincingly, I think, is that some good economic outcomes, which were later attributed to these policies, were not actually the motivation or the reason behind the policies. So that the good economic outcomes, even in a country like South Korea, were not actually intended, particularly the ones that benefited the larger population. The second is that state business networks were key to this muddling through. So these were not rational legal states intervening in the economy to guide, discipline, and coordinate the private sector, and the state was not insulated um, from societal and political pressures. Northeast Asian countries um, rather had pockets of efficiency, while other parts of the state definitely were riddled with clientelism and patronage. Ruling elites were not completely autonomous, they used policy access and st state resources as a way to retain power and political stability, just like any other developing country. In fact, their political systems were characterized by features commonly referred to as neo-patrimonial in African countries. So what's in this box, if you read the sort of Northeast, Southeast Asian literature, this is exactly also how many of their political systems were described during that period. So. Northeast Asian countries implemented industrial policy and achieved significant levels of economic transformation despite clientelism, corruption, and collusion with businesses. That's the first thing just to get off the table. Many of you may already agree with that point, but if not, this is something I need to say so we clear that off the table, okay? The problem in African countries is not clientelism, corruption, or collusion with business writ large. Once we're there, the next question is, so then what political conditions do matter? And here's where I'll present our theoretical approach. It's got two levels. The first is to talk about what are the conditions for successfully implementing industrial policy. This is really based on snippets and arguments already there in theoretical or empirical studies in East Asia and Latin America. I'm just going to put it together in a systematic way. And then the second step is to look at the conditions of the conditions. <laughs> this is where it gets more com complicated, but I'll walk you through that in a minute. So this is the model that we, um, that we use. Some of you may have seen this because we published it, uh, Lars Bohr and I published it in an article um, that came out before the book. So we argue that the, that successful industrial policy requires three simultaneous interrelated conditions to exist. And I should say, because I always forget, and then this is taking place at a sectoral level. So this is not at a national level, all the capitalist firms, all the ruling leagues. This is taking place at a sectoral level, um, in, and we're talking about in productive sectors. Okay. So if we start here at mutual interest, um, Again, this is not so controversial now, but it was very controversial at the time. The point is that new investments and competitive firms um, often do not arise, as I said, because of the high cost of production and high risks of becoming profitable. So what capitalists want, or aspiring capitalists, they want political support that reduces costs and uncertainty, and they need predictability in government actions. 
This is what matters, not really a good business environment and not the indicators on the World Bank's doing business. And this was a, an argument made earlier um, by Morin Schmitz. So what matters is close relations between capitalists and ruling elites. To get close relations, they need to have mutual interest. Now, in almost all cases, capitalist firms and farms will definitely want to work with government actors, with ruling elites. In fact, in all the literature, except for maybe some of the literature in Latin America, where they turn to foreign multinational corporations to supply solutions to the productivity constraints. That has occurred in some cases. But in almost all cases, capitalist firms and farms will want to work with government to solve their productivity constraints. So the more interesting side is why do ruling elites want to work with a given group of capitalists in a particular productive sector? So right now, we're just going to say they, they need to have that. <laughs> we'll get to a second to the conditions of the conditions. But they have to want to work to solve the productivity constraints. Once a faction of the ruling elite wants to do that and is therefore driving a particular industrial policy initiative, they have to be able to fend off distributional demands or conflicts of interest from other individuals and factions within the ruling coalition. This is a key point because an argument running through our theoretical approach is that the constraints to industrial policy largely come from within ruling coalitions within the ruling political organization, if it's a political party or military bureaucratic government. or So if we're looking at a pocket of efficiency, the pocket side of it comes from the ability of that faction of the ruling elite that's pushing the industrial policy to be able to fend off distributional demands that come from different factions and individuals um, maybe over the allocation of resources, over changing the institutions, maybe some of these change affects their own rents or their own businesses. So they have to be able to create that pocket. The efficiency side comes from, um, and this is probably most linked with the work of Peter Evans on embedded autonomy, but it comes from the relevant state bureaucrats, whatever agency is involved in implementing it, um, that they have close relations with the, this particular group of capitalists that we're talking about. And this is not just technical expertise, but actually ha knowing what's going on in the ground, on the ground in a particular industry, for example, in Ghana, knowing what are actually the needs, what are the productivity constraints in the particular country. And that requires, as Evan said, moving from the desk in the bureaucracy to the field and having that kind of hands-on relation. So that creates the efficiency side. And then the last loop coming back um, is that while capitalists need to have close relations in order to drive a particular initiative, those relations can't be too close. If they are, then state bureaucrats won't be able to ensure learning among capitalists in return for policy-generated rents because they won't have the political support to take away those rents if the capitalists don't perform. And we have turned that termed that part learning for productivity. Now, you can think about it in this way. And again, this is a stylistic argument. When we get into particular cases, it will show we, we, we found that African experiences have some more to say about how this works out in the field. But some general points that have come across is that without mutual interest, you're unlikely to get industrial policy 
You're unlikely to get governments pursuing industrial policy. <coughs> and I think this part has been overlooked because if we look in the period where we were studying from early to mid-1990s to the 2010, there weren't that many industrial policies to study because governments were not pursuing them. So how do we get mutual interest? And the nature of those mutual interests are actually important to just seeing more industrial policy, but also what sectors do particular governments choose? They don't choose all sectors. And how exactly do they design those initiatives? Now, once we've got the policy, pocket of efficiency tells us a lot about why some policies are implemented and others are not, or on a spectrum of how well they're implemented. Because what we often see is that distributional demands and conflicting interests within the ruling coalition um, block parts of the Im implementation. Some, this is a reason why some initiatives on paper never see the light of day. And then the third part, okay, the government has pursued it. It's actually implemented it pretty well. But this third part determines the extent to which the implementation results in required investments among capitalists especially investments in learning. <clears throat> so maybe the aspect of the industrial policy which required domestic capitalists to invest in building their technological capabilities doesn't come off, but some other aspects of the industrial policy do. So these are the three mutually, or the three interconnected conditions that we argue are necessary to see successfully implemented industrial policy. This is a lot to ask, and I think that's why we don't see more industrial policy being successfully implemented. But this only begs the next question, which is when and why do these conditions arise? When do ruling elites have an interest in working with particular capitalists? How are they able to fend off distributional demands and conflicting interests within the ruling coalition? And how can relations be close but not too close between ruling elites and capitalists? And this is the part where I say we call it the informally amongst my colleagues and I, we call it the conditions of the conditions. Um, and here we had to break what was at that point new ground because we, we had already said the developmental state and the neo-patrimonial state literature don't really get us in anywhere. And this is right about the time where I met Mushtaq and he came to work at DIS when we were, had a, um, a country case study also in Bangladesh. So then we began working with political settlements theory. Um, and what we have done is to work with Khan's arguments on political settlements theory, but elaborate it in a way which links some of his broader structural arguments to our three conditions. So I'm going to present the second part of the framework in two steps. First, I'm going to um, go through sort of the important causal mechanisms coming out of political settlements theory and link them to the three conditions. And then I'm going to end with a set of propositions um, about what is required, um, the political conditions required, or the political configurations required. So this is the part that gets a little bit abstract. So this is where we started out. Now, I'm going to assume some knowledge, because I can't explain 100 pages of <laughs> Gans' political settlements theory. Um, 
But I like this because when we think about, okay, here we have the way Mushtaq started thinking about political settlements, and we have here our conditions for successful industrial po policy. And what I'm going to focus on is this middle part. But it's important just to say a few points about the side over here. I think why political settlements theory is it is a useful and relevant place to start with is because where we ended in the critique of developments, developmental state theory, or it, its rejection, is that A, clientelism is in every developing country. So it's not an explanation in and of itself. Political settlements theory lets us begin, I think in a way that we haven't seen in recent decades, begin to think about how can we think about variations in clientelism? And how can we think about variations in clientelism in ways that relate to economic development, rents, accumulation? So here's just my visual summary of, of Mushtaq's argument about two arguments. One, that all developing countries are characterized by clientelism. Why? Because clientelism is driven by two general imperatives, which I've summarized as the political logic and the economic logic. The political logic is that political elites or aspiring political elites use patron-client networks to mobilize and organize coalitions that allow them to obtain and maintain power, as well as political stability, i.e. avoiding conflict and violence by buying off powerful groups. So all political organizations have some forms of clientelism, some forms of patron-client networks. Now, these are very different, and they take very different form. Mushtaq often talks about pyramidal ones, but that's coming out of Asia. Some of my colleagues are like, no, they're not pyramidal. Okay, they may not be pyramidal, but they're there. This is the way that ruling coalitions organize and mobilize support. But a second use of patron-client networks is for politically driven accumulation. And as Mushtaq has talked about, it's not always possible to transfer assets to emerging capitalists in a transparent and formally regulated way. So accumulation is often through patron-client networks. Sometimes it's legal, sometimes it's illegal. And this is in the context of um, pre-capitalist economies which have broken down in the colonial or even pre-colonial period and new configurations um, um, of economies. New groups are aiming to accumulate. So there we have the political logic and the economic logic. And the other important argument in political settlement theory, which many people miss, and I'm not really sure why, but what, what is important is country-specific distributions of power. Okay, so you have the generic logics, but how these play out and what they look at, look like, cannot be summarized. There's no one form. They're very specific to the distribution of power in a particular society at a particular point in time. They can only be described in historical narratives about how different groups and factions were organized to manage societies in the aftermath of the collapse of pre-capitalist states. The outcomes of these early struggles often created path dependencies that shaped several decades after independence. And in Ghana, this is very much the case. The struggles in the early 1900s, which culminated in the 1950s, very much structure Ghana's political settlement today. So these general logics, but how they play out in specific countries, are very important 
um, to understanding the structural constraints in which ruling coalitions are put together and the incentives facing ruling elites to pursue and implement policies. So here we can get to the second part. And again, still building on a lot of um, Mushtaq's work. We can think about two structural dimensions of political settlements. And they're structural because at any given point in time, they don't change. They may change slowly over time. They may change radically as, an as a revolt of some dramatic event. But at any given point in time, they're taken as given. And they are the constraints in which agency, in which ruling elites make, cho act, make choices and act. And this is the distribution of power within and outside the ruling coalition and the relative power of domestic capitalists vis-a-vis -vis ruling elites and their technological capabilities. So what we have tried to do is to tease out four channels through which these structural dimensions of political settlements affect the conditions for successful industrial policy. And I'll just summarize this very briefly to get on to the more interesting slide. So we identify four channels, the degree of vulnerability and the degree of contestation that ruling elites face, and the degree of political influence, on this side meaning the degree of political influence of domestic capitalists and their degree of technological capabilities. The degree of vulnerability is pretty straightforward. Um, the distribution of power among political factions excluded from the ruling coalition determines, determines the degree of vulnerability that the ruling elite face. So i.e. the stronger the political factions outside the ruling coalition, the more vulnerable ruling elites are to being unseated from government. In other words, this is important for us because the higher the vulnerability, the more sensitive that they will be to the social and political costs of certain industrial policies. The second one is the degree of contestation. And I put it in bold here because I feel this is really where we have begun to elaborate uh, on Mushtaq's work and take it further in terms of detail. Because while degree of vulnerability is important, um, what we found is that the degree of contestation within the ruling coalition, particularly among ruling elites, is extremely important as well. And it, a lot of focus has been on short-term and long-term time horizons. But what we saw in African countries is that it didn't really explain everything to us. Because even in cases where vulnerability was low, we still didn't see much going on. So it wasn't enough to explain. And while Mushtaq rightly talks about the distribution of power between higher level and lower levels within a ruling coalition. What we found to be equally, if not more important, is the degree of fragmentation among ruling elites, or the degree of co cohesion. And this you'll see as we, as we move on. So it's very important, the degree of contestation is about how much fragmentation there is in power within the ruling coalition, particularly among elites. And it's important to say that the default situation is dispersion of power and fragmentation among elites. The South Korea case was exceptional um, in case of cohesion among elites. But generally we're talking about the spectrum where you see fragmented elites. If we move down, the degree of political influence of a group of capitalist shapes whether elites have an interest in working with them. The sources of capitalist power include the relative importance to the economy, how much um, they provide income 
uh, for providing incomes for a high percentage of the population, so how much employment do they create, which tends not to be much in African countries. Are they a significant source of government revenue? Are they a significant source of foreign exchange? Um, and then, so that's on the economy side, and then are they an important source of financing the ruling coalition? So we have important for the economy, employment, incomes, government revenue, foreign exchange, and importance for financing the ruling coalition. All political organizations have to be financed. And then the fourth is the degree of technological capabilities, which shapes what the capitalists that we're talking about, what they are willing and able to do with, with policy-generated rents. It, it shapes their perceptions of risk in achieving profitability. It also shapes political elites' perceptions um, of what domestic capitalists can do. And it's often reason why ruling elites will prefer to work with foreign firms, because they perceive them to have higher capabilities. So, what we've done is try is pull this together in one figure, where we've teased out the causal mechanisms and create a set of propositions about how the country-specific political settlement does or does not get us to the three conditions. So if we start with mutual interest, which is important for even getting industrial policy in the first place, um, you see that a high degree of political influence is important, as already said. This is how domestic capitalists can get policy to address their productivity constraints. They can get resources allocated to their sector, um, and they can reduce the uncertainty and risk. Something that came out in our research is that the degree of contestation also affects whether mutual interests um, emerge or not. And this is because political influence is easier for domestic capitalists to wield when ruling elites are more cohesive. Otherwise, what happens is that a particular group of domestic capitalists may wield influence with a particular faction within the ruling coalition. But if that faction doesn't have enough overall power within the ruling coalition, it's not able to translate that political influence into policy influence. And several of our cases show this to be the case. So here we're sort of providing more nuance to some of the earlier models. That, uh, and, and I'll provide even more nuance in the last slides um, about the difficulties around mutual interest. So higher political influence, lower contestation, more likely to get mutual interest. If we look at pocket of efficiency, lower contestation, lower vulnerability. This is sort of straightforward. Um, lower vulnerability, greater ability to absorb social costs, longer time horizon, and stability in loyal bureaucrats, which is an aspect that we talk about more in the book. And then third, learning for productivity. And here's where the quagmire comes up, but we're not new here. Mushtaq already talked about this, that the degree of political influence of capitalists goes both ways. So higher political influence allows them to shape policy, but it also allows them to resist using learning rents or other rents the way that they're supposed to use them. So here we have lower political influence increases the likelihood of learning for productivity. And higher technological capabilities, there's a lower risk in becoming competitive, 
and more likely to use RINs for learning. So let me in the last part talk about um, what is unique about political settlements in African countries uh, and some of the findings from the industrial policy case studies. One of the arguments that we really wanted to make that came out of the work that we did on the four countries, but I, we also looked at the broader literature on the history of capitalism in African countries. There's not much of it, only about four or five books, but from the early independence period. And two things came, were very clear to us. One is that African countries don't have the same distribution of power. In fact, there's very significant variation in the distribution of power at independence. The best example is to compare, for example, Tanzania to Ghana, night and day. The level of political mobilization and organization in Ghana was extreme. You had, had colonial contacts since the 1800s. You had elites and political parties. You had over 100 educated, university-educated political elites. Very different in Tanzania. What so if you have such a big variation on the distribution of power, then what can account for the sort of similar trajectories that we saw in many African countries from the 1960s? And what we argue is that the commonality was on the side of the domestic capitalist. That what post-independence African countries had in common was not the characteristics of the politics or the distribution of power, but rather the characteristics of domestic capitalists. Newly independent countries either had a very small group of domestic black capitalists with low capabilities, often due to discriminatory colonial policies, or the existence of an immigre or settler capitalist class, non-black or non-indigenous, that had moderate capabilities but weak political power vis-a-vis -vis the new ruling political elites, particularly in the context of black economic nationalism, and Tanzania is a good case for that. So what we see is that the limited capabilities of black African capitalists and the fact that they did not dominate the key exporting sectors of the economy affected the political settlements in ways that took on path-dependent trajectories in the post-independent period. And these trajectories, many of them go on today, but they definitely went on into the 1980s. There is a clear disincentive of ruling elites to support the growth of a black capitalist class, especially one not firmly within the ruling coalition, and I think this is why we see so much state-led industrialization. It was not because the development economist said we should have state-led industrialization. It was the political logics of it. Even in countries where they wanted to support a black capitalist class, like in Nigeria, there was still heavy involvement of the state. And I think that this factor also constitutes a significant part of the explanation of why the economic performance under import substitution industrialization was rather or relatively poor compared to other developing countries. If we take Alice Amsden's argument that the extent of manufacturing experience in a country before colonialism can explain trajectories with success with industrialization, it's quite compelling. You don't have the managerial experience. Um, you don't have the, the sort of technological capabilities that come with whether you're working in a, a foreign firm or colonial firm or a state firm that many other developing countries had, or at least those that she, the rise of the rest. Um, and if you look at the edited volume that Sam Wagwe, Wangwe, uh, Francis Stewart, and Sanjay Lal did on why was state, state 
Why was import substitution industrialization, particularly the state-led part of it, performed so poorly? I think this, in many African countries, I think this is a big part of the answer. They didn't have the managerial capabilities, and they tried to do it anyway. There's some interesting underlying stories of what happened with East Asian African capitalists in Tanzania and Uganda, where it was supposed to be state-led, but actually the Asians were still there running, which could account for why Tanzania has a higher manufacturing sector. So this set off path dependencies. In some ways, we hit the re restart button after structural adjustment. But what we see in the period that we start looking at intensely from the 1990s is that domestic black capitalists with investments in productive sectors and moderate capabilities are still emerging, and that there is an overlap between ruling elites, emerging domestic capitalists, especially in dominant party ruling coalitions. So in a way, this is a heuristic device. Oh, wrong way. This is a heuristic device. This is what needs to happen even if it's the same person. So if the ruling elite in the capitalist firm is the same person, it makes it even more difficult um, to achieve learning for productivity. So now let's look very quickly at the end, going the wrong way again, at what do our industrial policy case studies, oh, no, last one. Um, so what we conclude, oh, it's on this side. Um, about the general political settlements, in most, again, here's my qualifier, most African countries are not favorable to ambitious industrial policy because they tend to be char characterized by fragmentation of power within ruling coalitions, especially among ruling elites, and domestic capitalists have low technological capabilities. It's sort of like the bad end of both sticks. <laughs> we see countries that have high dispersion of power, like Thailand, but they have domestic capitalists with higher capabilities. So while Thailand has competitive clientelism and Ghana has competitive clientelism, Thailand has a bigger stock of domestic capitalists with relatively higher uh, technological capabilities. Then to add injury to insult, we have ruling elites that can often maintain power without depending on the financing from domestic capitalists in productive sectors. They are depending on domestic capitalists, but they tend not to be in productive sectors. In fact, they're often in import sectors, which just makes it even more difficult to develop local manufacturing if the import business is funding the party. Or they're linked to usually construction sectors to state contracts. So here I want to draw out five points, and a lot of them revolve around the difficulty of securing strong mutual interest. The first is that it's difficult for mutual interest to emerge in productive sectors in the context of weak domestic capitalists and early stages of domestic, uh, early stages of capitalist transformation. The aspiring and nascent domestic <coughs> capitalists often do not have enough political influence. Um, this is clear in the case of horticulture in Ghana. And in cases where they do wield political influence, it's usually because they're part of the ruling coalition or aligned to the ruling coalition. In fact, some of our cases show that mutual interests are more easily reached between ruling political elites and foreign firms. This also seems to be the case in countries that one could say have more conducive political settlements like Ethiopia and Rwanda. And if you read the existing literature on Ethiopia's floriculture sector, yes, it's implemented amazing industrial policy, but mostly to benefit foreign firms. 
and the gap between the capabilities of foreign firms and Ethiopian firms is still very large, and the government has done nothing to incentivize investment and learning, which shows us that, yes, the Ethiopian government can implement industrial policy. It's probably largely fueled by the foreign exchange, the idea to diversify. They were able to implement things that address productivity constraints, but they didn't do anything on the learning rent side. In our cases, we often saw that ruling elites pursued industrial policy not because of mutual interest. So it can happen, <laughs> a caveat. Ruling elites can pursue industrial policy initiatives that are not driven by, industrial, by mutual interest. They may be driven um, by ideas of economic nationalism or by political survival. And the cases of this are Tanzania, the industrial policy cases that we looked at, they were not driven by mutual interest. They were driven by ideas of economic nationalism. And then the sugar case in Mozambique was driven not by mutual interest yet, but by political survival. However, what we find is that ideas are not strong enough. They're not a strong enough driver when implementation comes up against intense contestation within the ruling coalition. In the Mozambican case, the, sugar, the rehabilitation of the sugar industry was driven by the collective political survival of the Frelimo elites, and mutual interest developed during implementation with the foreign firms. Um, but it was, it was definitely not the driver. But it developed over time as it started, so this is a possibility. Um, and the mutual interest with foreign firms with high capabilities actually helped to overcome contestation among Frelimo elites, particularly those who were running imported sugar networks and benefiting from those rents, who, who the industrial policy had to change the distribution of economic benefits in a way which negatively affected a section of the Frelimo elite. But the other case in Mozambique of um, trying to build a national fish processing industry instead of just exporting raw fish. The contestation within the Frelimo was stronger, but here also because the mutual interests with the foreign firms were in the opposite direction. The foreign firms were industrial fishing. They had no interest in developing a national processing sector, and parts of the Frelimo elite were tied to those interests. So all that industrial policy um, didn't go anywhere. In several of the case studies, we also saw, which is the common question I get, of course, the benefiting local entrepreneurs were also in the ruling coalition or even among ruling elites. But I think the important thing to say here that, is that this is not necessarily problematic. In fact, this is one of the only ways to get mutual interest. But it is difficult to enforce learning rents in this situation, particularly when these ruling elite come. Capitalists have low technological capabilities. This gives them less incentives to use policy-generated and rents to invest in learning and become profitable. And this was part of the problem in the palm oil case in Ghana. And lastly, and this is something we hadn't thought about theoretically, um, but definitely came up in the cases, is that there can be conflicts of mutual interest. Okay, there can be conflicts, you know, with non-productive sectors and productive sectors that we thought about, import sectors. But what we actually saw in our cases is there can be conflicts of mutual interest within the same productive sector. Um, 
Conflicting interests existed among industry actors depending on whether they were located downstream or upstream in the sector. And this is particularly true for agro-processing um, between agricultural producers and the processing firms. And these are classic problems known of in, in, in economics because often the prices paid for processing tend to be lower than the producers want, particularly if it's low productivity agriculture where their yields are low. Um, but in this case, what we see is one section of mutual interest is aligned with one faction within, let's say, the NRM in Uganda. That's the dairy, that's the, the cattle side in the dairy case. And then the agro-processing firm is linked to a separate section, faction of ruling elite in the NRM. So this is something we were not anticipated, but it's definitely a possibility. And of course, this, this is, makes it very difficult. Um, there, there can be not just one sector of mutual interest. So it really then depends on which section of the ruling elite has more clout. In the case of the NRM, the one aligned with Museveni kind of run, won out. But in, but in Ghana, where no faction really has control, enough power over any other faction, it results in a stalemate. And we see this in the case of cocoa processing in Ghana. So to conclude on a slightly more positive note, political settlements in, in most African countries are characterized by intense contestation, which is a side which is not to, I mean, it's typical. Again, the de default situation is a dispersion of power. But this is combined with weak domestic capitalists. And for this reason, I think we shouldn't expect to see many African countries or even suggest <laughs> that they pursue ambitious industrial policy. But that doesn't mean that no forms of industrial policy will work. What we also see within our cases and within the broader literature that I know is that contestations within and outside the ruling coalition can and do play out differently across sectors. And this is because who are the relevant capitalists can vary. Sectors can be embedded in different institutions, different um, political interests, different socioeconomic relations. Um, and so even though let's say the Frelimo government can't implement the industrial policy created in one sector, we may see it implement industrial policy just fine in another sector. And this is important because the state is not a monolith. This is an important point to get away from the earlier ways of conceptualizing the developmental state. It's not an, a contradiction. It's because the state is composed of different actors. And we, see, we have this more relational approach the last point is to say, and this can sometimes be controversial, is that I think we're going to see two things going on with mutual interest. One is on there, one is not on the board. Um, the first is that mutual interest between ruling elites and foreign firms are more likely to exist. So let's see to what extent could they drive industrial policies that will also benefit the domestic firms in those industries and perhaps even incentivize local investment if enough productivity constraints are addressed through mutual interest driven by foreign firms. <coughs> the second is that I don't think we should be, this, the, the last point is that firm ownership structure doesn't really matter for us in this way of thinking. And here I mean the domestic ownership. It doesn't matter from the point of view of economic transformation. Whether the firm is state owned party-owned, military-owned, or just a private individual, if there are really any of those in African countries, they're all connected somehow. But 
particularly with state-owned and party-owned. There's a lot, and I see Pratesh over there. There's a lot of, you know, from the democracy side, people think it's bad. From the liberal economy side, people think it's bad. But from an economic transformation, it doesn't really matter. And if we look at the history of many countries, they were driven by state-owned enterprise. They were driven by party-owned enterprise. You're developing the technological capabilities within the domestic economy. We could see those people shift out to private-owned firms at some point. So we should, in link to that, we shouldn't be normative about the ownership structure, nor about whether or not the domestic capitalist class is emerging from within the ruling coalition. Many people see this as a bad thing, and they, so they just, this can only be bad. But I think from an economic transformation point and from this kind of political perspective, it's just what's going to happen. To expect it to not happen that way, except in a country like Ghana, is to be unrealistic. We will see the emergent domestic capitalists come out of the ruling coalition if it's a dominant party, like Tanzania, I think, to think that it wouldn't. Or we will see it come out of the state-owned enterprise or the party-owned enterprises. But having said that, it depends on the specific distribution of power. You will not see that in Ghana. Because it has a very different, uh, it, Ghana doesn't even have the ability to have party-owned enterprises because there's no cohesion within the party. So different, the, these different trajectories we will see, I think we'll begin to see African countries take even greater trajectories. And I would say rather than take a normative view, this is bad or good, we should study. Are party-owned enterprises in Rwanda leading to investments in learning? Or is it leading to predatory corruption or rent capture and use for non-productive reasons? This is just to give you an idea of, the, in the book you'll see many tables like this at the end of the chapters where we summarize the case and then look at it along the, the, the conceptual categories that we have. <coughs> yeah, that's it. Thank you. Um, that was quite a tourist course. <laughs> so it's a very challenging presentation, especially for people who have come to this I'm supposed to be a discussant, but I won't discuss it because I agree with everything you've said. Virtually. So I'll open it up to the floor because I think lots of you have questions, um, and that might be a much more useful use of time. We have this room till around what? Till around seven? Seven. Seven. So we have a good 45 minutes of discussion if you want to start shooting. Thank you. I see your good presentation has not mention the word market even once because for uh, national uh, elites uh, to invest anywhere with even uh, on their own or in conjunction with the uh, capitalists from outside who have the technological uh, advances. Uh, nobody would invest in any country, Ghana or anywhere else, if they don't have, the, first of all, the regional uh, market to uh, export, unless we are assuming that the products will go back to the EU or to the US or whatever, which is more, uh, you know, uh, economically uh, viable. This is number one. And number two, in matters of foreign capital, today I looked a little bit at uh, uh, trade uh, missions going to Ghana, and I found that one for oil and gas is being fully booked uh, uh, by the uh, Energy Institute here or in uh, uh, Council. Uh, on the uh, between 19th and 22nd of October, this October. So it tells you uh, uh, a capital can go 
to the uh, sector that makes, uh, you know, uh, a sure profit. When I compare to other countries, I don't claim in Africa, that uh, uh, people who are in charge, they beg for months for people to come in, like say for health sector or for other, you know, kind of investment and uh, trade missions are not full uh, by the time they get in as opposed to oil and gas, because as you know, the capital can get their own money uh, in this case. What's your own uh, impression about Ghana? Is oil and gas is the most profitable? Uh, though it doesn't uh, involve uh, the local workforce and matters of skills or work uh, <coughs> on a larger scale. Do you want to answer or you want so to take Unless a... there are very related questions. Is it related to that? Well, it is related in Africa. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, let's take a couple and then you can... Yeah, yeah. No, well, uh, as a matter of fact, I've been working after since age seven. So I just back from Africa Angola. And this was very really interesting to know, you know, what kind of industrial policy, you know, we can implement in Africa. And I say I, I really congratulate you for you know, such use the concept that I think is very important to understand Africa. It's a poor primitive population. So we, we never, we did have a, a, a primitive accumulation. The contrary, you know, it, everything they had was taken away, you see. Anyway, so believe me, I've been working in those know how can I prescribe, you know, industrial policy. In a country, in a continent where, you know, health services were destroyed, education services were destroyed, everything. And also, I think, uh, you are really optimistic about it's good, and uh, but I think there is a missing link, you know, in your in your book. I think it's impossible to talk about Africa without talking about international development and development. <laughs> After eight seven, until eight seven, most of the countries. I mean, like they are all working nicely. So in 87, the first one to implode was Somalia. You know, exactly, you know, the World Bank said, state's not good, let's minimize the state. And anyway, so, you know, the priority was to pay the debt. And so they started all the so-called massage structural adjustment, adjustment program. You know, from that's destroyed Africa. The little they had until that time, they have built because they did, you know, that was destroyed. So I think today, if you want to talk about Africa, I think this kind of, uh, it's good because you did a very good job, you know, implement, you have uh, four local studies that will show that, you know, Africa is not, every party is different. But I think we have to mention to, you know, to the industrialized countries and to the world, but that we destroy that. So the only thing that Dani Da and also can do is try to say to Mea Cooper, you know, and let's do something to, at least, you see, to compensate a bit. Because it's not possible to do anything after, believe me. I Just I mean, because I think it's very important, you know, to say about it. Because let's say the case of. Uh, that horrible uh, 
social problem that you have, a health problem you have in Africa and that. Okay. So that's what's created by it. By all this politics of the bank in the lab, you know. In the lab, you, yeah, I walked to them. So they destroyed the whole, you know, no, no hospital, no. Anyway, so the result was Ebola. You know, for me, it was not a surprise. So I think we cannot help. I don't like to say help people, because it's impossible to help anybody. Anyway. Uh, you know, support to say, look, guys, you know, you did that. And I think another point also that's important to understand is what we call the conflict of mutual interest. Of course, you have everywhere conflict of mutual interest, you know. Elite is important, you know, uh, making money with, with the commerce is important, you know, so they got, they got interdict all the kind of commercialization, so that it is, you know. Anyway, that's, uh, you know, I don't know, because I, I just came back from Angola, and I was studying a lot what they call PIP, public investment program. Yeah. They want to do that, yeah. you know, yeah. Yeah. all yeah. the sex, nicely. Yeah. So what I think we have to say is, you know, this capitalism really, you know, we cannot <laughs> manage industrial policy here. Now in Britain they want also uh, to implement industrial policy. They want to have an industrial development bank. I think it should help. Yeah. help can help. Yeah. But anyway, you know, I think please don't give a false, <laughs> you know, a false message, you see. Mm. And also, believe me, it's very important for you to have a kind of proscript, you know, in a book, you know, talking about Africa before age seven and African politics. Because that's what they're Should we take one more or do you, you want know, me to? It would be very interesting, you know, if you could, if you, if you don't talk about, you know, because I'm not a fact the MF, really, if you talk in industrial politics, pa, you know. But I think, let me just... Politics. Go, come in on that. I mean, so we destroyed them, you know what I mean? Yes and no. It is very clear that rapid trade liberalization is not good. I'm not the first person to say that. In fact, all the literature before says, because what it does is it destroyed the limited technological capabilities that were there, even in state-owned firms. Okay, so that is true, and we, and we do mention it in the book, but obviously can't cover everything in 350 pages, but it is true, they are, the, the World Bank and the IMF are to blame for that. But we cannot blame them for everything. In Ghana, there are probably not much technological capabilities left in its state-owned <laughs> enterprises to destroy. Okay, it's clearly its own fault. But in many countries, there were definitely capabilities there. And with rapid trade liberalization, um, a lot of, in Ghana it was more in the private sector, where manufacturing firms were destroyed. Um, Sanjaya Law's work shows this. Those are the private-owned ones, not the state-owned ones, by rapid trade liberalization. This is why Ghana has no manufacturing sector now. A more gradual one allows them to build the capabilities while having that competition from lowering trade. In the case of Tanzania, there were still capabilities in the state-owned firms that were then but when they were privatized, a lot of this was also destroyed. But I, I think I would, I, I would definitely not put all the blame on, on, on the World Bank 
um, and, and the IMF. No, and you, yeah, you mentioned a lot about yeah. the, the conflict, in, you know, yeah. with the, yeah. the state. But, you know, that's, of course, I think it's very good for you to... I mean, of course, the minimizing the state was wrong because what they, what they did, and we have, a whole, we have a whole section in the book about why structural adjustment, I mean, was very bad. It's, there were serious problems that structural adjustment addressed. And in countries like Ghana, there were serious macroeconomic in, imbalances that had to be addressed. Whether or not the World Bank came or not, it didn't need to be as severe, but it had, it had to happen. But I think, besides the rapid trade liberalization, the other very negative legacy of the structural adjustment period is basically they said, it was basically a Ricardian development strategy. They said, go back and focus on your comparative advantage, which Ghana did, and is why it's still dependent on cocoa and gold. So these are the two, I think, negative legacy. I think we need to be selective. We need to put blame where there's blame and not blame them for everything. So those are two of the places where I think the World Bank and the IMF messed up. But of course, now they're on the industrial policy bandwagon. So. Um, it's too late. <laughs> just to say, um, on market, I'm not quite sure what you were getting at, but let me just say, um, and I think we're not at a stage anymore where it's about do you produce with the domestic market because is there a sizable demand or do you export? Because the situation now is that in open economies like Ghana, even if you produce with the domestic market, you're competing with the international market because there are no tariffs. So you still have to compete in the domestic market for foreign products in tomato paste and rice because the tariffs are below what even the WTO says that you have to put. Okay, that's another World Bank and IMF legacy. <laughs> um, so whether or not you're producing for the, for the domestic market, for a regional like East African market, um, you're going to be competing against... Um, you know, imports. And this is where I think that import substitution is important. They might have gotten it wrong in the earlier stage for political reasons, which means you could still get it wrong today for political reasons. But producing goods to substitute imports is very important, particularly in a country like Ghana, where it's spending more foreign exchange on imports than it has. It basically imports everything. So we don't specifically talk about, I think, markets as much as you want. We do talk about, in the conceptual chapter, global value chains. And um, we talk about how, in the 21st century, you, will un you won't see the creation of whole national industries like you did in the 60s. That m Now it's more about how to enter export markets, how to enter piecemeal parts of production, and how to achieve the standards necessary to do that, which is not easy, even in agriculture. But I hope that answers the question. There's a whole bunch of questions from that side. So, shall we take them in line? Let's, yeah. um, I was just wondering, in the majority of the cases, um, in general, what, what do you think is the, which side of it do you think initially drives the, um, the um, attempt to uh, create a sort of mutual dependence? Do you think it's more the capitalist side of it, or do you think it's more, I mean, I share a lot of the time the same people, but um, although the government side? Government side. <laughs> if so, if that didn't come across, should I, government side. Um, I have a conceptual question, or maybe a suggestion, that goes to the, uh, to the question you brought up about uh, the size of the market. 
Um, so you conceptualize uh, the state as an arena of competing uh, interests as the outcome of power relations rather than uh, the source of power relations. And I'm just wondering whether within this framework you see a space not just for state business relations but also for capital labor relations. Mm, that's um, the one I always get. Because, um, <laughs> You see, you have distributional conflicts of capital and labor, and these are linked to the size of the market, because obviously uh, when you try to maximize profits, cutting down wages is one way uh, to go. At the same time, uh, cutting down wages uh, will also uh, well, undermine your market outlets. How do you see it linked to the size of the market? Um, you mean domestic market or... The, the domestic market. Right, so the, the distributional conflicts between capital and labor uh, will have an impact on uh, well, the size of your domestic demand in the end. Uh, and this is why... Um, you mean through wages as purchasing through, power? Through wages and purchasing okay. power, yeah. Um, and this is uh, where my question comes from. Uh, so do you see um, a way to integrate... Um, the distributional conflicts between capital and labor and how these are mediated through the state. Do you see uh, that as a possibility to integrate that within your uh, theoretical framework? And I think it's, it's very relevant um, uh, even today uh, in terms of foreign investment because a lot of the narrative of Africa rising comes out of foreign firms uh, anticipating growing consumer markets in Africa. Yeah. So Nestle, for instance, recently withdrew <laughs> yeah. False information, uh, from but Nigeria because uh, they said, "Well, we anticipated a huge growing market, but that didn't that didn't happen." Yeah. Um, that was based on faulty numbers of what constitutes middle class. That's their own fault. I think if they had done if they had done their homework, they would have. Uh, but yeah, I got your yeah, I got your question. Okay, should we take this? Okay. Thanks very much for the talk, Lindsay. I thought it was really interesting. I liked what you said about bringing. Uh, sort of capitalism, or the, the C word, back into the discussion. I was wondering if you could explain a bit more about the way that you are using the concept of primitive accumulation, or as you, I think you said it, is politically driven accumulation. Should we take one more? Or? Thanks, Lindsay. Uh, really excellent presentation. Um, I have a question in terms of the conceptual idea of this. So in terms of the, oh, just one part of it, in terms of the elite fragmentation. So in terms of the degree of elite fragmentation, <coughs> are you finding more or less room for pockets of efficiency in terms of if it's more fragmentation? And related to this, it, it, if there's more uh, elite fra fragmentation, are you seeing more vulnerability? And what's basically what's the relationship between fragmentation and vulnerability? That's Partly good. because of the Good question, but I won't go at it that way. Okay, let me go this way. But it's on the answer is on um, the government side. I think that ruling elite in many African countries, but particularly in the countries we looked at at the time period that we looked like looked at, do not have much incentive to address the productivity constraints in sectors with domestic or nascent domestic capitalists um, because it's kind of a catch-22. That sector is not yet important enough in the economy. And this is classic with the case of horticulture exports in Ghana, which I didn't include in the book because in the end, the government didn't actually pursue any industrial policy. It turned out to be a donor-driven initiative with no political backing. Um, so this has great potential 
but because it didn't yet generate enough foreign exchange, enough employment, was not significant for government revenue, an economy dominated by cocoa and gold and the royalties and export taxes, etc., related to that, that a lot of potential sectors are overlooked. So it's about, um, and then, then you have different idiosyncrasies coming in. So many ruling elites or the other side, the opposition political, elites um, don't really see the need to support, in this case, commercial farmers, which there aren't many of in Ghana anyway. But when it came to, to addressing their needs and the discussions with them, my work with these commercial farmers showed that, well, the, the political elite thought, we don't need to support commercial farmers because they're already doing well, which A, showed that they didn't really understand the industry at all, but also <laughs> the political elites just wanted to be like them. They wanted to, to, to develop as capitalists. So we're at such an early stage, and I, it was put to me by, um, by one uh, NPP politi politician in the government, uh, Kwame Bartels. He's like, when you go to support businesses, how do you decide which business to support? Everybody wants support. And in that kind of political settlement where there's so much contestation, it's hard to choose any group, also because the political elite themselves want to be supported. They, it's a case where you don't have this clear-cut domestic capitalist class yet, even outside of productive sectors, and everybody wants to be that. So it's almost impossible to have a political support for, um, for capitalists, whether even if it's just a financing um, scheme. So in, in that case, it's... We see in, in Ghana as an extreme example, it's really hard to create mutual interest. But I think in general, as I ended with, you're not going to see mutual interest emerge unless it's coming from within the ruling coalition where they don't feel threatened, while, while, where they themselves get to benefit, or with foreign firms who are not politically threatened and who bring in clear technological capabilities. Can I, can I <laughs> drop something in there just to... I mean, one of the problems, I think you highlighted that very well, is that... The problem of development is that you already don't have the capitalists, right? So you're trying to make a coalition with a potential future organism which doesn't yet exist. And so if you look at the example of the Bangladeshi garments industry, it didn't grow because there was a, a space that was created by a coalition between political interests and economic interests. In fact, it began with one firm. And that one firm was an experiment. And yes, there was a space because the, the president said, we have to try this. But why it succeeded is because, for a variety of reasons, it produced something, a firm that was competitive and which was easy to imitate. Mm. And the political space emerged in a negative sense that no one blocked it. No one blocked okay? it. But there, was a, there wasn't a prior kind of coalition because it was, and it went from one firm to 5,000 firms in a space of 10 years and became the number two garments producer in the world. But it wasn't planned in the sense of, in the, in the, but as you quite rightly point out, that that kind of industrial policy conceptualization of the Northeast Asian type mm -hmm. is completely irrelevant for most Asian and African countries. And we really need to think about the conditions under which you can create that one competitive firm that people can emulate. In a sense, this is what the Chilean model and other models are, are also trying to do. 
So, but that argument might be more relevant if you're talking about upgrading a sector that already exists. Mm -hmm. Then you have many firms which already exist and there has to be some coalition between them yeah. and the yeah. politician yeah. which creates the space for them to be upgraded. Yeah. So maybe that's yeah. an, an yeah. elaboration that yeah. in, yeah. in most of these countries which are at very preliminary stages of industrialization, Actually, the real focus is: Can you create competitiveness in even one or two forms? Yeah. And then you might, you might kind of trigger off a, a real yeah. dan. And here is a real problem of this kind of state-driven, political elite-driven um, capitalist transformation, which we really need to also keep in mind. Which is that it's very easy to generate growth through investment, right? So. The politicians decide this is a sector for investment. We are going to support that, and we're going to create space for investment in that sector. Asia has had long spurts of investment-driven growth. In the 1960s and the 1970s, you have growth simply because you're investing a lot. The real test is, do these people ever become globally competitive and can survive without the subsidy at all, eventually? And that's the real test for countries like Ethiopia, right? So the state is driving huge investments, but the test will be 10 years later. Can these people actually become globally competitive? I'm not sure that that's going to happen in Ethiopia. But Ethiopia is sector. very different. People would tend to focus on the state side, but the floriculture sector has no state at all. It's that's foreign firms sector. and private. But it's, you make an important point, which we say in the book, but I, I didn't talk about, which is the importance of um, industry associations. So when you already have some who, for various reasons, have emerged on their own, which yeah. was the case of horticulture in Ghana, their ability to create collective action amongst themselves and have a strong industry association, which then can then liaise um, with the government and make demands, even in a contested situation, is important. And one of the things that I learned from working in Ghana in the, in the last 10 years is that first generation entrepreneurs do not know how to work together. In fact, they work against each other. So industry associations in Ghana are very poor. They can't even make claims together. What I think happened in Ethiopian floriculture was the presence of foreign firms and second and third generation entrepreneurs who knew that importance, and they came together to really form the strong associations which lobbied the government and said, this is what we need. And then the government said, okay. So again, it can be a positive role for foreign firms. And I like to say that because a lot of Africans, my colleagues and friends, still have this very anti-foreign FDI approach. They think it can only be exploitative and only be bad. It can definitely be exploitative. But I think that there are several roles which foreign firms can play, and one of them is making a stronger um, in, in industry association. So that could be a solution once you've got some nascent capitalists. And then you're right, how do you get the few? I don't think it's going to come from state support. It's going to come through windows of opportunity. But both your example and my example are about early global value chains where there were more opportunities. And the problem now is global value chains are even more competitive that those kind of opportunities in the 80s are not as much. But I, I think that you're exactly right in terms of making that distinction in the two processes. Um, primitive accumulation, I'm using Mishtak's um, um, metamorphosis of 
of Marx. I mean, who asked me the question? Yeah. So it's, I mean, Marx was talking about through land, right, through the enclosures. But let's not underestimate, land is still the biggest asset in Africa and still a major way which ruling elites accumulate in all countries through speculation, through using their position to grab land. So definitely accumulation through land. But we take the broader definition that Mushtaq uses, which is any politically driven accumulation, which means it's not happening through a free market. It's happening through political intervention um, in that market, either by use of your political position or um, an aspiring, an entrepreneur linked to um, someone in a political position. Capital labor issues. Okay, it's interesting. I thought you were going to go another way with it because, of course, after I give this, I always get, sometimes I get where are the donors, but I always get where's labor. <laughs> and I don't have a particularly good answer to, okay, so there we go. Where's labor? Um, theoretically, I see where you're coming from, but I think we have to look at specific African countries. And then the one I know best, there is, an issue with wages that are a legacy of the nationalist movement. Wages in African countries are much higher than they should be in a pure market model. Mm. It's because of social bargaining. And, you know, we talk about African governments don't have strong state institutions, but they do because they have kept these high wages and they don't, yes, they retrenched workers under structural adjustments, but they have upheld this kind of legacy from the nationalist period about really high wages, which have no bearing on the market and productivity levels at all. And it's one reason why a country like Ghana will never have labor-intensive manufacturing, at least not for a while. Ethiopia has very low wages. How do you explain? I mean, Ethiopia is very untypical. Yeah, but it, because it didn't have a nationalist mm. movement, not, it didn't even have a colonial period, really. Not in the sense... I mean, its history is so unique. It's, it's an outlier. <laughs> on so many levels, but most countries had this nationalist movement, even if it was fragmented, as in Ghana and Nigeria, and this expectation of what independence brought. And it was higher incomes and higher wages, even though the economy, even at that point, could not sustain that. And these bargaining, again, are still um, kept. So I think... On the sector as well, so not every sector is the same. Yeah, but in Ghana, there are umbrella labor organizations and they negotiate and the wages are across the board. So, for example, I don't know if anyone follows their macroeconomic events, but when, Ma when Ghana hit macroeconomic crisis in 2013 and then precipitated down in 2014, many people blamed it on public sector wages. Public sector wages had spiraled out of control. And the public sector is the biggest employer, formal. Uh, formal employment. And that was not because of some, uh, you know, irrational, let's just raise all the wages before the 2012 elections. It was a policy which had been in the making for many years that they needed to rationalize public sector wages. Um, but they couldn't, but the only way that they could do it was to raise everyone to the same level instead of dropping some. So you got this rationalization of public sector wages through the bargaining with the trade unions that raised everybody's wages across the board. The same, I mean, the, the, the trade unions in the private sector are so small, they don't um, matter so much. But I think the issue 
the one that you raise, I, I don't think it's as important as the... <coughs> I'm not sure in, to, in the 21st century, again, industrialization is not constrained by the home market argument as it was in the 1900s for various reasons. So I don't think that a constraint on purchasing power is the problem. Um, so I, don't, I think we're not yet in a situation of Marx where the capitalist drive to reduce wages as the main source of surplus capital is going to undermine the capitalist system because there will be no purchasing power. Um, would you agree that the internal market is a first test place for increasing the quality of certain products and expanding, having some space? Because this is a big thing, right? They are operating the East African community, they are trying yeah. to create an internal market which is a certain size because they realize that actually there are some nascent yeah. cap capitalists who are trying to, they know they cannot export yet, but they have products which can reach the level of quality that could actually compete with import imported products and could start expanding in the internal yeah. market. So how do you, I, I, I understand. You well, know, I'm, I'm, I'm of the people who subscribe that we will no longer do, again, the East Asian model, you will no longer have, let's build capabilities in the domestic market and then export. They're just fundamentally different markets, I think. You don't, you, you, the way that you enter global value chains is so fundamentally different from the com products you would want to be competing with in the, in the domestic market. They're different capabilities. And there's some good work by wider, by economists at wider who show you don't learn and then export. You're born exporters. It's called born export. And they, they use fancy quantitative methods, which show. but the point is basically um, that one. But I think on labor it is interesting because I'm caught in the tough thing. In some countries, I think uh, the benefits to labor are too high. But it's not going to change because of the social political cost of changing that, for example, the Ghanaian government is too high. Then I've seen really interesting work on floriculture in Ethiopia, which says that labor is being heavily exploited. So if economic transformation is based on the idea that this is going to benefit labor, of course, we've got to have that there. Or there's no point to it, raising incomes, providing wage employment. That's higher than the alternative peasant. But I'm wondering if that if it's the case because these firms are still caught in this very low part of the global value chain, and so there that there's that work on social upgrading where you, upgrading is linked to also rising wages as well. But I think my my overall point would be the, that countries are so different that I think we have to look at labor on a country by country and maybe even a sector by sector basis. Of course, it's not in the model, but everything can't be in the model. <laughs> so um, I think we don't have the luxury for it yet. I mean, there are really interesting comparative political economists doing work on exactly this question, Rick Donner and Hickens and others in East Asia trying to get the labor question in. But they're looking at countries stuck in the middle income trap. We're not there yet. On Because we're running out of time. On Pratesh's, um Yes, this is an important point that, again, I didn't make, is that formal institutions, particularly through democratization, so uh, electoral systems, formal institutions in, set up by the Constitution, but generally all related to multi-party democracy, 
tend to spur elite fragmentation in the way that Mushtaq says, but also in other ways. Um, so there is a link there, because what happens in Ghana is that the first-past-the-post single-member constituency setup has meant that a political position is not really dependent on the party organization. Therefore, they don't owe their position in power so much to the party. Yes, they all stand on the umbrella, and yes, they're unlikely to change, but they need to have their own political, sort of sub-political organization to get elected and to get re-elected, and they need to meet the core voters who are wanting patronage to be shoved down, and the swing voters in the community, which means they need to use their position usually in ministerial appointments, because in the Ghana, the constitution is the president has to appoint a majority of ministers from parliamentarians. So everyone's scrambling to use their ministerial positions to channel money and projects to their constituency. And what all of this does is definitely exacerbate a fragmentation that was already there due to the distribution of power. So as Mushtaq has talked about, we see an interaction between formal and informal institutions. So we're not saying that formal institutions don't matter. It's just informal. But looking at how they interact, multi-party democracy and Ghana has, and the vulnerability side has definitely spurred um, elite fragmentation to the, to the extent that Ghanaian political elites from either party in power cannot decide on anything how to prioritize anything on any particular policy. So this case of industrial policy, even though it was supported by the president, it only had the backing of a few other major politicians, and they couldn't even get resources allocated to it because the Minister of Finance was against it. So there is an interesting dynamic there, and I think over time you will see the, the, ele that elections are leading as Mushtaq says, this move from dominant party to competitive clientelism, not just because the excluded political factions can take away the lower levels of the other party, but because the actual formal institutions themselves, depending on what they are, can drive uh, fragmentation. When you're not dependent on the political party for your seat, um, it, it definitely drives fragmentation. Hmm. Just a clarification. You mentioned these cases the, the money was never allocated. Is it correct? N no, they didn't get as much as they wanted. So, okay. um, because it was only a small faction of the NPP elites driving this initiative, okay. um, and high-level fragmentation, it undermined the implementation because <coughs> there were massive struggles over the allocation of resources, and they only managed to get a small amount. Um, of what they wanted. So there was a fight within cabinet. Um, you have a very common story in general, right? I mean, they, when they move from the design to the implementation, the resources are basically cut down. It's the same story in South yeah. Africa, Tanzania. Yeah. So, I mean, we have to, this is a serious yeah. point. Even, I mean, Ghanaian politicians talk sincerely about economic transformation, and I don't think they're unsincere. Yeah. I think that they want to diversify their economy, <coughs> but these are long-range ideas. And they battle every day with the jockeying politics of who's going to be elected in the primary, of what am I going to get to give to my constituency. And these take first so, place, and the rest is, 
I want to get there, but I am going to not support an allocation of a lot of resources to develop a productive sector, which would take the money that I could have to do this. So here's, so here's <laughs> a, a proposition, right, which is, given all this, which I think I completely agree with, the overall political fragmentation and so on in most developing countries. By the way, it's not just an African problem. This is a developing country problem. Then might it not be, and this is something which I've been developing in my own work, it might be more feasible to say that actually when you're trying to upgrade existing sectors like palm oil, where upgrading requires huge amounts of allocation of resources, which will be blocked by somebody because there's going to be a contestation over these resources. It's very difficult to do because then you need all your three conditions, you know, space and mutual interests and so on. That actually the, the, the feasible industrial policy is likely to be those under the radar screen new kind of activities of which the classic, classic example is the Bangladeshi government's industry. One firm, yeah. one experiment, yeah. something yeah. took off and replication, yeah. right? And really one should be thinking of industrial policy in these kinds of countries as one-shot experiments of developing a productive, competitive firm, not a sector. Yes, but the firm. politics even come in there because <laughs> okay. this didn't need to be resource-heavy, okay? Right. It could have been equally political, but, you know, helping to solve the land issue because for palm oil you need huge tracts of contiguous land, which is not going to happen. <laughs> no government since Achimpong has tried to expropriate large tracts. But there are several issues, and it doesn't. Industrial policy doesn't actually have to involve large outlays. And in fact, the the cases that succeeded in here are where, particularly in the case of Mozambique, or where the government doesn't have to. Exactly. However, the attractiveness of this and the way it was designed was because the NPP, which proclaimed itself to be the party of business and 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 liberal markets and all this. This group of political elites wanted a state-driven policy. They wanted the state to implement it. These are the people who say they're, they are against Nkrumah statist policies. Why? Because politics. Because they want to be able to claim credit that the state brought all of this stuff to the constituency and therefore the ruling party can take credit at election time. This is the party benefit so we had the individual MP story, but then we have the party benefit story. The same politics that drives political elites on both sides, both political parties, to be more interested in state-driven projects. So the same politics are why I cannot implement state-driven politics. So when people ask me, what is my solution in Ghana? <laughs> because I would say the state should not implement it. It should give incentives various different means, which we can go into details, but no one else will be interested in. I have thought about different ways that the state could subsidize and give incentives to private firms to do this. Um, but that's not what's interesting. That's not a political strategy. But when they try to do something so difficult as this, with lots of money and the state is supposed to help the farmers and it's all state-driven, they can't implement it. The only solution is to, and here's a much more agency argument than all of this, is that to convince politicians that there are other political survival strategies, that they could win elections by doing it a different way. 
I don't have the clout to do that, but I'm sure someone does to convince them that there are other ways to win elections than by giving a lot of, spreading out a lot of money to a few people. That's what happens. Thank you, Lindsay. I think we've hit seven o'clock. You've given us a lot to think about, and I hope some of the younger folk here research ideas and so on. So thank you again, and uh, we shall continue this discussion. Thank you.